My parents chose to leave communism to come to America. Uh, we chose to dumpster dive. Didn't have to, but it was choice, right? Circumstance. The circumstance was that the food was in the trash can, but it was my choice to get the food out of the trash can. Welcome everyone to Do Well and Do Good. You're here because you have the desire to create financial freedom, but you also want to make a powerful, positive impact on the world. This podcast exists to tell the inspiring stories of men and women who have achieved both, people who do well and do good. I'm your host, Dorothy Ilson, and I'm here to help you discover proof that individuals have the ability to make a massive impact. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode 34, and I could not be more excited to have you here today. My guest is absolutely phenomenal. But before I introduce him to you, if you are not currently a part of the Do Well and Do Good Facebook group, you have to be there. This is where you can vote for the Do Well and Do Good Challenge at the end of every month. And it's also where I'm sharing tips, ideas, resources, and more to help you both increase your income and your impact. So you can find the group at dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook. Now, today's guest is none other than Andre Popa. Andre was born in communist Romania, where his father spent 14 years in prison for standing up to the communist regime. Eventually, when Andre was nine years old, his family made the journey to America with nothing but each other. No English, no money. They really had no choice but to work hard as a family to survive. That meant dumpster diving for food, selling whatever he could find, really doing the sorts of things that most people simply aren't willing to do to change their circumstance. Andre had entrepreneurial blood in him from a very, very young age. And that drive is what catapulted him from extreme poverty to creating the life of his dreams in America. In this episode, you'll hear Andre's full story of that journey, as well as how ending up in the hospital changed his mindset from optimizing for financial success to optimizing for happiness. I firmly believe that money is nothing more than a tool. Happiness is the real goal, which is why I'm so excited for you to hear Andre talk about this shift. Friends, this episode has so many amazing lessons to unearth. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Andre Popa. Andre, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm thrilled to have you here. I'm so thrilled that you're thrilled to have me here. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Andre, let's dive straight into your story. So tell me, what was life like for you growing up and what did your path look like to get to where you are now? Huh. Where do you want to begin? Do you want to go like way back? Way back. Take me to the childhood. I was born in communist Romania. And being in, in the United States now for 40 years, I, I have perspective. Like I understand when I say communist Romania, I understand the American mindset where it's so far away. It's like nobody really understands what that means, communist Romania. So just a quick little painting of communism. Uh, everybody works for the state. You have no freedoms. You have no freedom of speech. You have no freedom of food. You have no freedom of money. So as a child, being brought up in that environment, um, it, was, it was weird because my father spent 14 years in communist prison. It's a long story as to why. He was very anti-communist, did a bunch of illegal, uh, sorry, illegal, of, of course, against the communists. It was very legal of what he did. But because of all that, he ended up in prison and eventually 14 years later gets out. But because of that, my, our childhood was 
our phones were bugged by the KGB style uh, the force that we had in Romania. Uh, we're followed everywhere. There's always a guy in a trench coat, you know, at the corner. <laughs> so it's funny today, but at the time it was just normal, right? It's like, oh, we're going to the store. Cool. And <clears throat> there's a guy <laughs> spying on my father. So weird and bizarre, but at the time it was very, very normal. And as you know, I, I just I remember being a, being six, seven, eight, nine, etc. We we'd go to school and we'd come home. We'd have a quick lunch, and then we would, gosh, we would then go to the supermarkets. There were sorry, no supermarkets. There were stores. It's like there was the meat store, there was the bread store, the potato store, and everybody would go get in line because you would know, like, okay, today we get a delivery of pork, and then you know two days later you get a delivery of beef. So we literally, as kids, I'm six, seven, eight, whatever it was, we would go get in line for two to three hours every single day to go get whatever was delivered. So then uh, we take it home. My mom, parents would come home now from work, 5 p.m.-ish, whatever it was. And now she'd start cooking dinner. And that's when we would start doing homework, wrap up homework, then uh, have uh, dinner. And then if there was time left over, we'd go outside and play. So that was my upbringing every single freaking day of the week. At the time, there was no perspective. It was great. You follow me? Because you, and, and especially if you focus on what you have and what's in front of you and you're grateful for that, man, I mean, it was gold. We, we had pork once a week. <laughs> well, so what was the money mindset that was created for you as a child due to growing up in this communist country? I would go to school and I don't know where I got this from. I don't know if it's something just in my DNA or the circumstance in, in communism, but I, I started making money very early on. So I was six, seven years old, and on the way to school, I would buy the bigger packs of candy. I would get to school, break them down, sell them piece by piece to make a profit. So I don't know if, again, this was because of the circumstance and I saw opportunity, or it was something in me, or both. I don't know. But fast forward now to United States of America, Southern California, 1979. We're, you know, fresh off the boat. It was an airplane, but I like saying the boat because it's funnier. <laughs> and uh, no English. <laughs> no money whatsoever. So we're just, you know, we're fresh. And as we re realized how the system here works and what's possible, right? Because the brain goes into opportunity. I mean, we're in the land of the free. This is it. This is the American dream. Like we made it, right? What was cool is that as we're, you know, my father gets a little the job, you know, packing the refrigerator or the freezer section of a store. And, you know, he does that. But what we realized in that whole journey is that supermarkets would throw away whatever was expired or molded or you know, gone bad, whatever, they would go into the dumpster. Opportunity, all of a sudden you got food, right? Because there were thousands and thousands of dollars being thrown away every single day. So we would literally dumpster dive. I'm, you know, freaking nine years old. And we're like, jump the fence, jump the, uh, get into the container. And it was everything. It was vegetables and fruit and bread that just had expired. And just anything that had that passed the date, we took home, but there was nothing wrong with it. Piggybacking on your question, like, you know, what created this, this mindset of opportunity? It was, this was, this had a lot to do with it because it showed me that, man, worst case scenario, you're going to be fine in America. Because all you got to do is go to the trash can and you can make it. But the mindset is you actually have to jump into the container to get your food. And a lot of people are not willing to do that shit. It's interesting because I assume that mentality you had back in Romania of, you know, selling candy bars for a profit I imagine that wasn't encouraged, you know, in, in the communist culture. Was that something that your parents encouraged in you or it was just natural? I mean, again, it was just natural. That my, I, I don't remember. I was, I was young, but it was not a conversation. It was not something that my siblings did. 
It was just me. Don't know why. Don't know if it was circumstance. I can't tell you at this point in my life why I did that. And so I don't know. It was just something I did and it was great. And then I also would buy these, um, gosh, there were stickers. I mean, you're taking me back to like 42 years ago. But basically, I, I would buy these stickers of butterflies. <clears throat> and they were just like the hottest shit. They were from China. And it was the hottest freaking thing. <laughs> and everybody wanted them. So I'm like, all right, you want these? Not a problem. So I would go buy sheets of them. And I would sell, cut them up and sell them individually. So I don't know where that's from. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you're nine years old. You're dumpster diving for food, doing these things that so many people just aren't willing to do. What did the next few years look like, you know, as you started growing up and you went through high school, what happened to your family? You know, every, uh, there was just that sort of normal evolution, if you will, where, you know, my father, you know, got better and better jobs until he decided to become a contractor. So then he sort of became an entrepreneur. And I guess maybe that's the entrepreneur spirit, the DNA that's, that's, that was in us and that's in me today. You know, the us growing up in a little town in Southern California, uh, we're very Hispanic dominated in that town. So I grew up around, uh, it was, gosh, from 95%, 90% Mexicans. And I grew up now taking on the language, taking on the dialect, taking on the food. <laughs> I love the food. But with that came some negativity because I was the foreigner. And, you know, to me, I'm like, the people, you know, the people of that town, it's like, you know, we're all foreigners, but they did not understand that. So because I was the new foreigner, uh, they decided that I was the bad guy. So there was a lot of physical activity, a lot of fighting. So I had to learn how to fight very quickly. And um, I did. I became very good at it. Once in a while, I would get jumped by a gang, by a few, you know, they would like look for me like, okay, he's coming, he's going to walk this way from school, blah, blah. So six, seven, eight guys would just jump and beat the shit out of me. So I've had that happen a few times, but when it was one-on-one, -on -one, I dominated. And then they would come back with their posse and kick my ass. So <laughs> to answer your question, it was a great, <laughs> great time of my life. So, but it taught me, but again, it taught me, it taught me so many things because it, it, again, it's leadership and, uh, you know, how to, how to, influence groups. And so it taught me quite a few things. You know, I wasn't just a victim. Oh, I got my ass kicked. No, no, no. I would like think through it. Okay, cool. What can I do next time? And how do I control these guys? And it was phenomenal. So through that, I uh, went into high school. Gosh, high school was interesting because by that point, well, gosh, so my father, I told you, became a, a contractor. So he would now take us out in the field. So after school or weekends, we're working, you know, we'd like, we didn't have time off. Like our American friends would go oh, playing baseball today and we're going to the arcade. And I'm like, arcade, what are you talking about? You know, we're building houses, man. Uh, and I'm, you know, 10, 11, 12 now. And we had newspaper routes, not just a newspaper route. Like we had eight of them. So we'd come home and we'd have stacks of these newspapers in front of our house and we'd have to roll them for So we spent two to three hours after school rolling newspapers. And then we'd stuff my mom's car with these things and we'd go pass them out. That was twice a week, Tuesday, Thursday. So that made us a few bucks. And then we had, um, we had a dog that would just have these big litters. And we learned that people like puppies. So we would go and in front of the supermarket and sell puppies for five bucks. Five bucks? Is that what you said? Hey, five bucks. Are you kidding me? Wow. It was big money. This is 1982, 83, 84. It was huge. And again, for us, we're foreigners. We have nothing. So yeah, so it was amazing. So five bucks a puppy. And then we learned that we can get a, a burger at McDonald's for a dollar. And I was like, that was the biggest thing. Are you kidding me? Anyway, so I, I have stories like this, you know, forever. I can keep going. We can sell avocados because we had avocado trees. It was just freaking awesome because for us, it was always, always, always opportunity. 
And we just kept looking for it because it was possible. It was possible to do whatever you want, create whatever you want. And um, by the time we got to high school, I literally uh, launched my own little side gig or side business, if you will. And I put an ad in a, what's called a little newspaper penny saver. And I would say, okay, I can install a light fixture for you or, you know, a ceiling fan or run a receptacle or whatever. And I would get calls. And that was like the beginning of my, I guess the entrepreneur, like actual money coming in as an entrepreneur. So it was really cool. And that was, that was high school. Did you have a plan for what you wanted to do after you graduated? You obviously wanted to be an entrepreneur. That was clearly in your blood. But I did, that's a great point. But I didn't, know, I didn't know that the word or the term or the concept entrepreneur existed. I was just doing me. Like today, I'm in the world of entrepreneurs. So like you and I having a conversation about entrepreneurship. Well, you know, shit, 40 years ago, it didn't exist. I didn't have those people around me. So for me, it was just what you do. It was just normal. So no, I didn't have a plan. There was never a plan. Uh, High school took a turn. I'm going into my junior year of high school and I wanted, uh, because you know, you get, or at least in California, you get to elect. Like I want, uh, you know, this class or that class. So you get two electives. And I really, really wanted auto mechanics. I wanted auto mechanics and it was full. So I huffed and I puffed and I said, I got to get in there. It's, you know, it's my way or the highway. Well, that didn't work out. So they stuck me in theater. (laughs) (laughs) Opposite track. (laughs) Complete opposite side of the spectrum. And I was pissed. I was livid. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is for girls. No way you can't put me in theater. Now, fast forward. It was something that was for me. So funny enough. So during this process of, of theater and acting, I, the next two years of high school, junior, senior, I took every best actor award uh, available in the competitions that we would do. We had a national competition. I took best actor there. So it was really amazing that I get recruited by the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in Pasadena. I attend that for three years. I start doing commercials, a couple of films, and a lot of theater in LA. But I decided one day uh, to stop. I regret it today, but I decided to stop. So um, got back to business and work and uh, bought my, I bought my first piece of real estate when I was 25 years old in same, uh, same area, a uh, little town called Pico Rivera, California. Then I bought a restaurant at the age of 26 in Hollywood, California. And that was genius. <laughs> you sense the sarcasm there? Hard business. <laughs> Do you feel the pain? <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I, I can go on with stories. I just, I got them all. My understanding is that real estate has made up the bulk of the income you've generated over your career. Is that correct? Yes, I, I will say that. So yes, real estate uh, between like actual acquisition, flip, sell, transactional, if you will, and also design and construction. Tell me about that evolution. You go from buying your first house to eventually ending up in the design and construction business. How did that happen? So I bought this house. And again, remember, because my father was always around construction. So there was always that in my space, if you will. So you buy this house, remodel it, do whatever to it. And again, I'm 25 at this point. After we did the, do the big remodel, at one point, there's still another bathroom that still needs to get done. So I take this bathroom apart and I put it back together really, really nicely, whatever I thought was nice at the time. So that bathroom starts getting attention. Like, oh my God, who did this? And I'm like, well, my parents would say, well, my, you know, our son. So that started to get me attention for design. And I'm like, I don't freaking know. I just know the word pastel. And I, you know, so, but I had no clue, right? Like the, the concept of design just didn't look too good to me. 
So I started getting attention for that. And people say, well, could you do mine? Can you do mine? Can you do mine? And that sort of just opened up the door to the design world. Meanwhile, whatever I was designing, I was also building. And I got my contractor's license at whatever point. And that just now, I met my wife 19 years ago. So at that point, we just really blew it up to another level. And uh, we you know, started doing a lot of high-end stuff for celebrities, a lot of basketball players, Hollywood people, uh, people of just high net worth. And it was an amazing ride. And I say was because we shut that off a year ago, right over a year ago for many reasons. We can get into that if you want. The majority of the income from the design construction world was phenomenal. We can also talk about the part of what it comes with and why we chose to get out of it. Yes, please. Yeah, but one thing that we really loved in that whole journey, because you know, we did it for many, many years. Well, the biggest thing that we loved is to do our own projects. That's the, the meat and potatoes for us because we're both, my, my wife's a complete badass in, in business and <clears throat> also uh, anything that has to do with design. She's really, really phenomenal. So we now, whenever we would do a project for us, it was exciting because it was for us, not for the clients, not for somebody that tells you what to do and how much you can spend. It was for us. So it just brought a different element of possibility to the table. So, so we love that. We, we will always do that. We'll always be in real estate. You know, the United States will do stuff in uh, Europe. I've done stuff in Europe and we're going to keep doing stuff in Europe because we love Europe. So. so why did you stop? You know, every single business in the world has shit. Every business has stuff. So when you look at a, a business like contracting, there are so many moving parts. And again, the bigger you get, the more moving parts, the higher the net worth of the contract or the house or the whatever you're working on, whatever the higher the amount is, the more shit it comes with. So the machine brings out certain elements to this business that are just simply not fun. You know, you have people that you're dealing with, so many laws, so many uh, things to abide by, things you cannot do, things you cannot save. There's so many legal parameters. And again, I'm talking about the higher you go up in the, in the ranks. It just got to a place where it was not fun anymore and very stressful. And I would wake up in the mornings and say, wow, I'm not happy. Today, I actually hate going to work. I hate going to meet this owner of a $30 million house. I'm hating it. I don't want to do this anymore. So it was a journey. It was a journey that took about two years to finally say enough is enough. And my wife was a big part of it because we actually made a decision at one point, whatever it was, two plus years ago, where it's like, yeah, that's it. It's done. It's over. Did not, it didn't sink in for me. So I built it even bigger. <laughs> I swear to you, I, and I cannot explain why. She's like, what, she's like, what's wrong with you? I said, I don't know. Have it. <clears throat> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. That's just, I'm built to do that. That's what I'm good at. So now we're making a decision to go the other way, like stop and retract. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. Like I use the, the Honu turtle. Uh, you know, on Hawaii from the islands, the Honu turtle doesn't swim backwards. So if it needs to go back, it has to circle. So that's just me. I, just, I don't know how to go backwards. So I'm just like, you know, we're moving. <laughs> anyway, so we just, uh, it just became that thing that was not exciting anymore. And um, once we got to that place where actually my Tammy, my wife, she one day she's like, I can't do this anymore. I'm out. So I'm like, huh? So that got my attention. I'm like, shit, you're out. That, that was it. That was a big turning point where it's like, okay, cool. So let's make a plan of how to really shut things down, stop taking on clients and we'll just let it go. Uh, but what's cool is if you, you know, because the, it's all there, the knowledge is there, the experience is there, we have it all. So if it ever needed to get turned back on within a day, it would be like, 
get back in business if obviously that needed to happen. But that's the story. The big lesson there that I hear at least is that you're optimizing for happiness rather than for, you know, just making as much money as you possibly can. Obviously, you've had a, a really successful career, but talk to me a little bit about, you know, finding happiness in what you're doing. You know, do you believe that being able to, you know, optimize for that is something that you've earned at this point in your career? Or do you think that, you know, people should be doing that at every level of their life, no matter where they are? Such a phenomenal point. And I'll go back to the beginning of construction because this has a lot to do with what you're talking about. So at this point, I think I'm 32, 33. Tammy and I are, you know, newlyweds. We have a 16-month-old and let's say a two-month-old. And we're building already. We just finished a 6,000-square-foot house and we move into it. And business, construction-wise, design-wise, is blowing up. And I'm 32, 33. I have no freaking idea what I'm doing on the business side. Because nobody taught me business. Nobody taught me finances. Nobody taught me scaling. I'm just, again, just like when I was selling candy as a kid and butterfly stickers, I'm just doing. I didn't know uh, any difference. So something happened back then that scared the shit out of me. I'm going to a client's house in Manhattan Beach and I, I can't breathe. I get to this place where I'm, my chest is shutting down. I can't breathe. I'm like half of my face is numb. I can't see properly. So I'm like, oh my God, I'm dying. What the, right? What is happening? So I get to this client's house. He's not answering the door because at this point I need help, right? Like if I'm dying, somebody call my family and just let them know quickly, get them on the phone, something. But obviously I didn't want to scare my wife, et cetera. So he doesn't answer the freaking phone. Uh, I knock on the door. He doesn't answer the door. Uh, so the other thing I can do is I have a friend who's, you know, it's someone in the medical field. I call him and I said, I'm having this. He's like, well, you're having a heart attack. I'm like, oh my God. I'm 32, 33, whatever it was, I can't have a heart attack. So he's like, no, 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 call 911, call 911. So now this throws me into a, the next level spin. Now I'm freaking the freak out because, ah, it's a heart attack? What? So 911, they come get me. They put me in, obviously in the ambulance. And now in the ambulance, because it's a closed environment, claustrophobia kicks in. I'm like, no, 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 I need, I need air. <laughs> so we get to the hospital. They do every single test on earth. Uh, there's nothing wrong with me. The doctor, who's a really young, cool guy at the time, he's like, dude, there's nothing wrong with you. I don't know what to tell you. But meanwhile, as we do more testing, take this little pill. And it gives me a little cup with, I think there were two, maybe two little blue pills, uh, a cup of water. And just take these. Let's, we'll check back in a few minutes. I said, all right, cool. I take those and I swear to you, within 10 minutes, whew, life, was, life was good. <laughs> wow. So what he gave me was Xanax. Oh, no kidding. You were having a panic attack. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, it was a good one. <laughs> it was a good panic attack because I've always committed to like, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it 100%. So if I'm going to panic, I'm all in, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> Better make it as good as a heart attack. Oh, my gosh. No, no, no. <laughs> so now this now takes me into a two-year cycle of, I didn't, I did, I never, I've never believed in pharmaceuticals. So once I get home, and of course, they prescribe me all this stuff, and I, I don't want to do the, the pills. And I, of course, I, you pop the pill, and then hours later, you start coming off the pill because you need another one. And that feeling of coming off freaking Xanax, whoa, I didn't like it. So I started researching, and I make a decision, nope, I'm not going to do Xanax. I'd rather do whatever, even tequila. What, it doesn't matter, but I can't have that chemical stay in my body and mess with my head. I do a lot of research as to what anxiety is. 
I find out that it's 100% thought-based. It's what we think about. So if the, the answer was that I'm whatever, because it's all anxiety, panic is all fear-based, and my thoughts are feeding that, then whatever I'm thinking about is creating fear, therefore creating anxiety. So I'm scared of something. All right, cool. Which means, technically, I just got to think about something else to replace those thoughts that are bringing me negative, bring in thoughts that are going to bring me positive. So I find a phenomenal hypnotherapist. I go to her. Like, we like camp out. She's down in southern, like, San Clemente. So we drive and take the kids, pack it up, get down there. And we spend a whole week with her. And I saw her a few times a day because it was bad for me. I, I got suicidal. I mean, it, it was deep. It was really nasty. And um, she saved my ass. And, but it took two years to really come out of it. But that, that mindset was the key because I had tangible evidence that our thoughts create our universe. Thoughts become things. And that's it. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's amazing that you, you bring up hypnotherapy because I actually just about a month ago started working with a hypnotherapist and I've had a, a lifelong nail biting problem that's obviously related to anxiety. And I mean, it's bad. I would bite my nails until I was bleeding. And so now it's been three weeks since I last bit my nails and it's the craziest experience because for the first time in my life, you know, there have been three months here, six months there where I've managed to force myself to quit, but I would just replace it with something else, you know, cracking my knuckles or whatever. And so this is the first time in my life that the urge has just been completely gone. And so I, I completely understand. So, so I guess to the question though, like, do you believe then that at every point in our career, we really should be optimizing for happiness, you know, optimizing for what's going to make us feel good and keep us out of that state? Absolutely. hundred uh, percent. Listen, we have one life to live, right? And I know that used to be a soap opera, but that's not the point. The concept is that we're, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk says it's the best, like you're going to die. And from that perspective, it's like, you have so much time. You have so much time during the day, so much time in a week and a month and a year in your life. There's so much time. Why people put up with going to a miserable job, miserable business, miserable relationship, miserable family. I don't freaking know. I don't get that part, but we justify as human beings. We, we justify why it's okay. I got to do what's hard. I got to carry the cross. You know, uh, I was brought up Catholic and then moved into Christianity. And, you know, it's like that, this mindset of the martyr, you know, I got to do what's hard. I got to, I got to uh, carry my cross and bear, bear, carry the burden, whatever this thing is like, oh man, that's freaking dangerous. But I come from that, right? I come from that mindset of we're not good enough and I'm a sinner. I'm a, I'm a piece of shit. You really have to break out of that cycle, that mindset, and the people that you're around. If people you're around, and I'm not preaching here, but I'm just I'm saying what I had to do, and my wife and I are very, very conscious of this. If people we're around are not promoting us as phenomenal badasses, then you just can't hang out with us. And I don't care if it's my mom. I don't care if it's my dad. I don't care if it's... It doesn't matter. I don't care who you are because from whatever perspective you look at life... God, universe, whatever everybody's belief is, I have certain talents and gifts that God or the universe, whatever you believe in, gave me. So if you're not here to promote that, but you're here to put me down and hey, that's not going to work out. Hey, you're not going to fail at that business. Oh, money changes you. And I'm just talking about reality as to what my, parent, my parents and, and family fed me for years. I had to break away from that. I had to make a decision that, hey, my life is worth so much more. My life depends now on me, especially once I started kicking into the 
understanding about the thoughts and what that thoughts become things, well then shit, how do I possibly allow some, a thought from a loved one telling me I'm not good enough? No freaking way. That's, that cannot possibly happen. So it's a journey of respecting yourself to such a high place that nobody, nobody, nobody can touch you. And then you get to a place where you, again, the journey is to, to not touch yourself in a negative way. And this is where it becomes a science in yourself, self-develop. I self-develop every single day. Like right now, before we got on this thing today, I'm in the gym and I'm listening to audio. I'm listening to currently the science of getting rich by Wallace Waddles. That book changed my life. Oh, Nikes, right? It's just amazing. But it's a commitment. It's like what we put in our being, just like, you know, you are what you eat. Well, you're also what you think. That's it. So from that perspective, you have to make a daily momentary decision that you will only put up with happiness. You will only put up with badassery. You will only, only, only put up with what's perfect and amazing for you and everything else can F off. (laughs) You're speaking my language, Andre. Well, you posed a question the other day to your network on Facebook. Are you watching me? I am. I got to do my research for these interviews, man. So you asked if poverty is a choice or a matter of circumstance. So of course, you know, you grew up with very little. You came to this country with nothing. So I'm very curious to know, what is your answer to that question? It's 100% choice. You know, and I know, obviously, we have hundreds of responses and different opinions. But I love doing those posts because it shows us how different we all are. We're the same people, though. We're the same. We eat the same. We go to the bathroom the same. We wear clothes the same. We still have hair, right? We have this, all the senses, all the same. But now when it comes to beliefs which goes back to thoughts, we differ. And it's like, why do we differ so much? Who separated us? Because we're all phenomenal human beings. They're all built the same. So I do that stuff on purpose because I love, not necessarily the debate, just to see different people and who, and who to unfriend. Now, uh, <laughs> so my answer is very, very specific and simple. It's choice. It's 100% choice. And yes, there are circumstances where you choose to be there. And it's choice to be in that. And you see, um, and say it's because some people are like, man, they're like Zimbabwe somewhere and there's just no option, no possibility. Cool. Let's say that's the case. But at one point, there will be that one guy or that one gal that's going to come through the village with a better goat. Shouldn't you ask yourself, how did he get the better goat? Oh, but you didn't. Then that's choice. And if you did, that's choice. So for me, it's 100% choice. My parents chose to leave communism to come to America. Uh, we chose to dumpster dive. Didn't have to, but it was choice, right? Circumstance. The circumstance was that the food was in the trash can, but it was my choice to get the food out of the trash can. That's my answer. Thank you so much. It's fascinating to hear your perspective because you, know, you, you aren't someone who grew up in the privilege that so many of us here in the States have known our whole lives. So one thing I'm curious about is I know that you've done an incredible job, Andre, of raising children who are motivated, who are grateful, and who really are already hard at work as teenagers building their own dream. So tell me about that. What's your approach to raising kids with strong values and work ethic, especially since they have grown up in such a different environment from what you grew up in? The biggest factor to all of it was the... I was brought up in in Romania came to America and I saw the big difference. And I, I obviously I have perspective. So one thing that, I, that you see in America a lot is this privilege, this, uh, well, you know, it's like there's no drive. I'm not, there's a section of entrepreneurs, don't get me wrong, but 
as kids are growing up, like I mentioned, you know, they're, I'm playing baseball, I'm going to the arcade. And it's like, that my kids are not going to do that shit. My kids are going to actually, they're going to read books. They're going to self-develop. They're going to hang out with badasses. They're going to be around adults. They're, we're going to homeschool them. We did it our way for that reason, uh, because we wanted to mold them into what we wanted to mold them into. We homeschooled because we didn't want other adults raising our kids with their mindset and their bullshit. It's like, we have enough bullshit. I'll just give them mine. Right. I don't, I don't need more from other people. At least you know what they're getting then. Oh yeah, we're good. So anyway, so we just, we always had this just very, very specific mindset around how to raise them. And my wife and I always agreed on it. We never had any, um, any, any battles or doubts in what we're doing. Of course, everybody's telling us, you know, to, like we covered already, oh, you're wrong. You guys are crazy. You're going to mess up the kids. You know, like our kids are not immunized. Our kids were not brought up on sugar. Our kids don't know McDonald's. They don't know fast food. And it was just a journey, but we travel the world with them. They know exactly what they love in Tuscany and what they love in Paris and what they, you follow me. So that's, we decided to do it that route because, you know, right now they're 15, 17 and they're just complete badasses. One of them uh, has a phenomenal uh, blog. I'll drop it here. It's Chow Bella Travels. It's C-H-O-W. Uh, and she's got almost 16,000 followers on Instagram. And she's, her blog is blowing up. And it's all about travel and food and just phenomenal. And the other one, a 17-year-old, wants to go to Mars. And that's not a joke. She wants to go to Mars. And she follows Elon Musk and Naveen Jain and all these guys that are going to freaking Mars. And she, wants, she has a, like a business plan of what she wants to do on Mars. And create sustainable living on Mars. And she's 17. Uh, she's making me look like I'm playing small, right? But that's the, that's so for us, it's always, how do we make them better than us? Well, Andre, I know that giving back is something that's very important to you. So tell me about that and how you've been able to leverage the success you've created to help other people. Um, great question. So number one, everything that we've done in our journey, we've over, overdone it. So for example, all the employees that we ever had, and we've had hundreds, we overpaid. Anytime we would feed our, our guys a lot. So lunches and breakfasts were very, very common. And so we, and I'm, I'm, I'm starting there because it was just part of our culture. Your ethos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just part of who we were. Like we just love our people and teams and um, we love feeding people. So that was a big deal for us. So outside of that, we've always loved supporting people that are doing things that we don't either have the time resource or maybe guts to do. So uh, can I piggyback to Walter? Yeah. Yeah. So we find this guy in, in Mexico and in Ensenada, his name's Walter, and he's part of a, you know, YWAM, Youth with a Mission. And what this guy has done for the last, I think all of his life, like, I don't know how long he's done it, but he's decided to take care of families and kids that are basically homeless, which means they live in cardboard huts, et cetera. So youth with a mission, what they do is they, you know, they raise money, et cetera, and they build these homes for these families in a weekend. So they bring teams together, et cetera, boom, all of a sudden you have a home. That's a cool thing that he does. But what's cooler that he does that really got our attention is his devotion is really to the kids because he is looking to impact the future Today is what it is. Got it. You know, we can do our best and feed, create homes, etc. But the future, like, how do we change this mindset in the people? And what he does is he takes the little ones and he creates culture for them. He takes them and teaches them surfing, teaches them team building, 
teaches them the Bible. And now these kids, because of him, have different options for the future. They have different possibilities. They have different dreams, right? They have choices, what we talked about earlier. So yeah, the circumstance is what it is, but where's the choice? Where does the choice come in? So he's creating a phenomenal, phenomenal thing. So once we figured out that he's doing that thing that we would love to do or really support, we just started supporting that because if we can support him to go do more, it's game on. So, um, so that's Walter, really cool cat. If you ever meet him, man, he's got four kids of his own. His wife is American. They live in Ensenada, just a really, really cool, cool family with a lot of, I've never seen more heart in a human being ever. Like if, you know, the epitome, if you, if you ever were to see Jesus Christ, it's Walter. <laughs> I swear, it's Walter. That's amazing. Yeah, he's back. Andre, thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us today. You really do have such an unbelievable story. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. So I'd like to move into what I call the impact round. So I'm going to ask you a series of short questions. I'd like for you to just respond with the first answer that pops into your head. You ready? Absolutely. All right. Who has been the most impactful person in your journey to do well and achieve financial success? Tony Robbins. Who has been the most impactful person in feeding your drive to do good and make an impact? Wow. I'm going to go for the Dalai Lama. Awesome. Love that. Then do you have any regular mindset or personal development practices? If so, what are those? Absolutely. Meditation for me is, is crucial. And when I say meditation, you know, most people like right now, when I say the word meditation, they think, oh, you got to sit in a lotus position and you got to, you know, meditation is conditioning the mind. So if you can, so what I do, that's very, very crucial for me is control the thoughts, control what's in here. So I have a very specific ritual that I've learned to do where if I'm, my mind is rambling and the chatter box is going, going, going with whatever I don't want, I have now have a very specific system of how to shut that off and move into the direction that I want to go into. So that meditation practice for me is a few times a day because I have to stay focused on the direction that I chose, right? Because if we let the brain, the, the mind, it'll go, it'll, you know, it'll zigzag all over the place, but and that'll take you off course. So very important to stay focused. Audiobooks. Uh, I have probably 30 audiobooks right now that I ping back and forth on. I can't ever do just one. That's just my personality because I'll get different tidbits, right? And it's also a pattern interrupt for me at work. So I have to like get this information. Oh my God, amazing. And then I move to this thing that has nothing to do with that thing. But it's like, poof, amazing. So between my specific meditation practice and audiobooks, uh, that's for me that it keeps me very focused on where I'm going. Then what book do you find yourself recommending to people most often? The Compound Effect, Darren Hardy. That was, I think, the very first personal development book I ever read. That's the foundation. Yeah. <laughs> it is. And then lastly, what is the best piece of advice related to happiness that you'd give my listeners? And before you answer that, I'll note this question up until this very interview was always the best piece of advice related to success. As I was preparing for your interview, I decided to make that change. And it's so interesting that we talked about optimizing happiness because I think that it's, it really is the most important thing. So how would you answer that question? What's your best piece of advice there? Fight, fight, fight. The idea that we have options and we have choices to make, it all stops there. Make a decision that you're a badass, not from an ego place. Oh, you know, I, I drive a Lamborghini. That's not it. 
in your heart, in your spirit, make a decision that you're a badass and you deserve nothing but that, and then allow nothing else around you ever, and you stay the course and you stay the fight for your badassery no matter what. And I know that you have some sort of program to help people tap into that inner badass, the badassery factory. Is that right? Yeah. Where can people find that? Well, it's launching soon, uh, but basically badasseryfactory.com. So just the way it is, B-A-D-E-S-S-E-R-Y factory, F-A-C-T-O-R-Y.com. That's the best uh, place. And of course, you can find me on Facebook. Yeah, Badassery Factory on Facebook, Andre Pope on Facebook, um, Instagram, all that fun stuff. But yeah, so we have some cool programs coming up and there are programs where we're teaching people business. We have coaching as well. And then we also have trainings on anxiety, panic, and suicide prevention, because that's a big one in today's uh, society, especially millennials coming up. They're freaking out because if they don't get 20 likes on their posts, I'm not good enough. It's really, it's an epidemic. So anyways, we have some cool, cool stuff coming up. Awesome. Well, we will link to all of that in the show notes so that people can connect with you and follow your content. Um, But then lastly, Andre, as you know, here on the show, we have what I call the do well, do good challenge. So this is where I encourage our listeners who want to give back to contribute to the nonprofits that are nominated by our guests. Could you tell us what organization you'll be nominating and say a few words about why it's so meaningful to you? A hundred percent. So the organization is YWAM. It's Youth with a Mission. Specifically, though, Walter Meza Perez, he's in Ensenada. It's Walter, M-E-Z-A, Walter Meza. Uh, He's just the most phenomenal human being that you will ever meet. And if you go work with a guy, because you can actually go and build homes, you can go feed the kids, you can go play with the kids, it'll change the rest of your life. So 100%, that's my nomination. I stand by it. Andre, it has been seriously an honor to have you on the show. I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for everything you've shared with us. So nice to meet you. Thank you for having me on. All right, everyone, that's our show. Now, before I sign off, I want to introduce any new listeners to how the Do Well and Do Good Challenge works. There are two ways that you can participate. The first is if you are looking to do more to give back, I encourage you to contribute to any of the nonprofits nominated by my guests. Send a screenshot of your receipt to challenge at dowellanddogood.co and your donation will be included in our monthly tally of the tangible impact this podcast is having. The second way you can participate is absolutely free and that's by voting. See, in the first couple days of each month, we host a vote inside of our free Facebook community to determine which of the nonprofits nominated the month before that I will then donate a portion of my advertising agency's profits to. It's an awesome way to make your voice heard, and we've been able to raise money for some incredible organizations doing good in the world. So if you'd like to be a part of it, then head over to dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook, where you'll find a link to join the group. Once you're inside, I'm also sharing tips, ideas, resources, and more to help you both increase your income and your impact. We're having so much fun inside there. So head over again to dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook, and I'll see you on the inside. It means the world to me to earn your time. So thank you so much for listening.